what I do look for is that you have that lingering on insanity in, in a positive way. You know, you need to be intense. You need to really, really burn for what you do because, I mean, if you see enough people trying to pretend that you really care, you know it from yourself, you, you pick it up. You can smell this is fake. Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to Morton Toft Beck. Morton's the founder of Meatless Farm, a plant-based food brand that you've probably seen in your local supermarket. It's the fastest growing meat alternatives brand with $37.2 million raised to date. Morton started out in finance in London and worked in that industry for 15 years before leaving to start a fintech company. The wealth of knowledge that Morton has in investment and finance is invaluable to any entrepreneur. And he shares plenty of this advice and tips in this episode. Morton's also extremely passionate about the ethos and mission behind Meatless Farm. The fact is that we're in a climate crisis and Morton is dedicating his entire working life to battling it, which is obviously very inspirational. So this is Morton Toft Beck, enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Morton. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So you founded Meatless Farm in 2016, but as you mentioned uh, in our conversation prior to the podcast, you previously started out in finance and, and still a partner in that company today. Can you tell us a little bit about your career before uh, leading up to founding Meatless Farm? Yes. Yeah. I guess I have an entrepreneurial background and, and I think entrepreneurship is often that that buck that bites you and then it's very difficult to do something else afterwards. So so when I graduated from business school, I'm, I'm originally Danish and I, I went to Copenhagen Business School. And when I was in the, my final year of my studies, the internet was sort of happening. This was about 90, 1996, uh, 97. So, so I, I ventured out and set up at .com like that was so popular in those times. And I actually built up a, an internet company at a very young age that then got sold in an asset transaction a few years later. And I was, you know, bitten by the buck already at, at that point in time, having had that experience. So, so after that, I sort of, in 2001, if it's a long time ago now, but the internet was sort of doomed. Everybody were happy. They had a fax machine in their office and said, oh, I'm going to continue doing that. And this whole email thing is not going to be anything. And then you know, so when I stood there in 2001 and had had sort of exited at dot com, it was not popular to do anything entrepreneurial or at least not Internet based at that point in time. So I went back to business school, did an MBA, and then I started working in the financial industry like that was so popular uh, at that point in time. So I, I did that. It worked a bit in corporate finance, and then I went from corporate finance into trading. And from trading, I then a few years later saw an opportunity to set up a fintech company. And I left the the, the industry around the credit crunch times and then set up my, my own thing, which yeah, still exists today. And what made you originally want to go into business what and because you've identified the fact that that entrepreneurial spark was generated by the fact you, that you exited a, a dot-com business? What was the initial thing that pushed you to want to study business and become uh, a business person? Well, I, I think my father, is, uh, is, he's, he still is an architect, uh, but he, he's been running, as many architects, their own companies for forever, as, as I can remember. And it was a lot of very hard work, a lot of passion, but not a lot of necessarily financial success with it. Just, uh, just a really... A passionate industry and so I grew up around that and, and our our family life was very much involved about my dad's 
business and being an entrepreneur himself and having an architectural practice and, and working night and day and weekends and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So, so for me, it was a natural way to think entrepreneurship, I think, when I grew up. But I also wanted to do something where, you know, there was some more financial incentive uh, to, to the whole thing. And then it's just it was just pure timing and luck, I guess. You, you know, I graduated from business school when, when the Internet was sort of just taking off in, in Europe. And, and being Scandinavian, we the, the sort of the internet penetration was higher up in Scandinavia. And, and then, yeah, had had, it, had I graduated a couple of years later, I wouldn't have done that. I can imagine it takes a particular drive to exit a dot-com business and then start another business. And then once that business has achieved some success to the point where you're able to free up your own time, start another business. So I'm assuming it's a drive that is a, about more than, than just money for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. The, so Meatless Farm, which is the reason why we're talking here today, is not a business that's about money for me. It, it's very much about sustainability, environmental change and change for good. And, and I, I sort of I reached a point in my life where I, we, we were in London for 15 years as a family. I met my wife there. We got kids and then we moved out of London to Ibiza where... We had a place, so it was a very sort of easy transition for us to a bit out of city life and then try to live the island life with small children and and, and then live live the dream of being on the beach and, and picking oranges and so forth. And that, that's great for about four four to six months. And then you realize that it's it's really boring if you if you still have a lot of energy and you need to do stuff. So so out of that sort of sprung we, we're a vegetarian family. My wife hasn't eaten meat for many, many years and 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 she then suggested that probably to get me out of the house, to be honest, but you you need to do something. And, and I think you should use your entrepreneurial experience to set up a business which is not about money or finance or trading or Internet or technology or whatever, but something that's like physical and and good and for doing good. Right. And, and out of that then sprung the idea of, of setting up Meatless Farm, which in 2016 was a fairly innovative uh, thing that there were a couple of American companies uh, beyond an impossible were, were two names that sort of pop pops to mind that had created a burger that was bleeding and that sort of stuff. But here in Europe, we were still quite early on in the adaptation of what was essentially laid on being plant based uh, food and and that and that whole movement. So so there was also a, there was an opportunity available just as there were back in the internet days, right? It's sort of you have to try to pick those business ideas that that seem to be with the stream rather than against it. One of the questions that I think a lot of budding entrepreneurs ask themselves is, where do I start if I'm starting a business? Uh, what product do I launch first? And once you've even then landed on an answer, how do you know where to go to? How do you know who to speak to? So for you, when you were, when you were at the very starting phase of this business, how did you know where to start? Where did you start? Yeah, I, I think as a general advice to a lot of entrepreneurs, it, it, it's like, Sometimes people dream of being entrepreneurs more than actually the the actual thing that they are doing. So it's more the the idea of of it. And therefore, I I mean, also as a as a private investor, I you know I invest a bit of money now and then into into startups. And if I see something that's really cool, so so I get a few business plans in. And there, there's quite a lot of them where you sort of sit and scratch your head a bit and go, is there really a you know a demand here? Is the, is is this really a business that? Or is it someone that wants to be an entrepreneur and desperate to set up? So I would say, like, first of all, you need to be sure that you are actually addressing some need that needs to be solved and that you're not inventing that need just to be an entrepreneur. Uh, so so that, that's sort of the first, first part. Make sure that, that you are 
hypothesis of what it is that you're trying to solve is real. So be real with yourself. And then once you've realized, okay, this is a real thing, I'm going to go and do it. And then obviously you have to analyze the market in which you are in. You have to see uh, what you think are the driving factors for being successful. But in, in my case, it was sort of, I was entering a new area. I had no, absolutely no experience in the food industry at all. So so I, I, I guess I've just walked a bit naively into to things as well. And, and you could. I mean, I, I don't think you can do that. Well, you definitely can't do that today in the sustainable protein plant-based space because it's become a very competitive space. But back then there were, there were no competitors. So a lot of the success of Meatless Farm was, was just timing and being there at the right time so we could get a listing. And Sainsbury's in the early days in, in the UK, they were very very supportive of us. And I'm pretty sure that if you come with a, with a plant-based product today, Sainsbury will be a lot more inquisitive and difficult to, to get them to list your product than, than what I have. But, and then to answer the, the last question, Joe, how do you pick the product? I just looked at what I'm trying to do with Meatless Farm is I'm trying to replace what essentially is unsustainable proteins with sustainable proteins. And when I mean, what I mean with that is, is it's not... I'm not against meat in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's just there is a, some meat, industrialized meat, uh, cheap meat that, that, that is being produced for hitting a certain price segment in the market that often goes into minced meat, for example. And, and it is very, very high volumes and, and it's, it's not often the highest quality. You can, of course, buy high quality mints, but most of it that sort of cost a couple of quid or a little bit more in the supermarkets are not the best, the best quality minced meat. So, so, so I was trying to find out, well, what are the volumes in that category? What, what can we do to actually replace it? And I realized, well, this is the product. That's our. So we started launching with a, with a product of, of, a, of a plant-based minced meat of traditional pack size looks like the, the usual thing. You cook your spec bowl, you do exactly the same thing. So we made the swapping of one protein type to another easy for the consumer. And yeah, and, and that was sort of, so, so it, it wasn't, it wasn't, the scientific part was not coming up with the product. That was fairly easy. You just go in and, and ask the supermarket, how many packs of minced meat do you sell a week? And it's huge amounts. And you were like, wow, I want to be part of that market. And then the, the scientific part was more like trying to actually create a product because we had we had no idea well you mentioned there that you sort of wandered into the market a little bit naively just because you've not been in in, in the market before who do you go to talk to to ask i want to make plant-based mincemeat who do you speak to to start that process where do you look yeah i mean i i looked at at that point in time you look at the research labs and and we went to a place called rssl which is a terrific place in reading university campus that does the have a food science department and just went down had a chat with them and said you would you be interested and it so turned out that the director of the say food lab she was actually a vegan herself so she got a, she got really excited about yeah that sounds like a really fun project and and let's 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 try to you know figure out how we can do this so so we started there from she had zero experience in in doing this sort of plant based meat there wasn't any companies that we could look up that were doing because nobody were really doing minced you had what we call generation one products which was I mean, the corns of this world have existed for a long time. They have their microproteins and a, and, and a very different way of addressing uh, vegetarian products. And then the legacy products, the, the sort of the vegetable patties that were sort of vacuum packed and that sort of stuff. So and we just all we knew was we wanted to try to make something that was different and more closer to meat, which was 
which a lot of people questioned in the beginning, saying you're making a vegetarian product, but you're making it like meat. That doesn't make any sense because vegetarians are not going to buy it. And we're like, well, we don't want to sell to vegetarians. We want to sell to the meat eaters. And they're like, but they're not going to buy vegan products because they're meat eaters. So, so we ended up in like a little bit of a limbo of, you know, what are we, what is it that we're actually trying to do? But, but you know, we stuck with it and, and yeah, it was the right call. And how long did it take to develop that into your first product? took about 10 months in total of, of a sort of R&D uh, trial and error, forth and back, uh, trying to find out what type of oils fit that are. I mean, there's a lot of, when you then go into food, there's a lot of things that you need to learn about. Allergens, uh, you need to learn about the, the, the composition of, of the products, the shelf life. What's, so some of the stuff that's possible to do in a lab is just not possible to do on a larger scale manufacturing plant because of temperature controls or lack of the same and so forth. So, so it, it, it's really, an, and, and you know, you don't want to, we, we were very clear that we wanted to make as natural a product as possible and not something that sort of was perceived as shining green when you turn the light out in the, the kitchen. So it had to be without too many e-numbers or without e-numbers if possible, without, there are things you can put into products so you, you, you extend your shelf life and so forth. And, and we, but we wanted to do it natural. So, so that, that created a little bit of a challenge on, on the lead time of developing the product. After those 10 months, you've got your first product that you're happy with, you're ready to take it to market. Who are the first people that you speak to to get that out there to the market? Yeah, so the first thing I did was I hired an MPD chef. So that's a new product development chef. That's a thing in the food industry where these often trained chefs, but they're trained not working in a, in a say, in a restaurant kitchen, but more in a professional kitchen where you develop a new food flavors and so forth. So they have some sort of hybrid between the technical knowledge that is required plus the, the, the stuff of that you can never forget in the food industry is that at the end of the day, it's not... It's not like technology. It's not a scientific process. It is you have to make a good tasting product. Otherwise, forget about it. Yeah, People are, at the end of the day, not going to buy stuff if it's not tasty and good and, and so forth. So so the chef side is also very important. So so that was sort of after the lab time, we got, we got a chef involved or the MPD chef and then a commercial guy. And then it was basically just trying to go out and... And so I was taking care of the investor side and, and, and because I kept saying, if we actually, after this R&D period, have a product that I think has a chance at making it, then I'm going to go out and raise some money and, and you know, get investors on board and put what I always call uh, uh, jet fuel in the tanks and sort of you, you speed up your acceleration and, and you get some external money in. So, so I, I did that. And then in the middle of that process, it all sort of came together at the same time. Um, the product was getting stable, meaning that we could manufacture it in larger quantities. Uh, Sainsbury's, there were no category buyers. So supermarkets, they have sort of structures where they have buyers that are specialized in certain categories of food. And back then, there were no category for plant-based. So there was a, a person there that was sort of looking at the space, and he was very passionate about it and super supportive. And so they listed the product. We got we got a we got a listing. So the sales guy had now ticked his box. MPD guy had ticked his box, and I then ticked my box and got some external funding in, and and we were off to the races. The the growth in the plant based sector since you've launched has been massive. I don't know whether that's in response to people being more of environmental uh, issues that are being caused by meat farming, or whether it's 
to do with documentaries that have come out that have raised awareness of the benefits of switching to vegan or vegetarian alternatives. But with the rise in demand, but also the increase in options, and because obviously naturally, as demand increases, more entrepreneurs are going to become interested in the space. How are you keeping up with the the growth and the competitors and how do you stay kind of front of mind and, and ahead of the market? Yeah, you know, it's funny because you want to be right when you start a business. You you know, you, you want it to be that sort of mega trend. And I was, to be honest, just lucky. I had no anticipation of the trend to be so strong as it was. So what we actually found ourselves in was, I believe that when we set up the company, it was something like, you know, five plant-based companies or two plant-based companies in the UK that year that was set up specifically under that category. And the year after, it was something like 290. So, so obviously, there was an inflow of both, you know, entrepreneurs wanting to, to tap into this. And then there was also an inflow of money coming into the space. And, and actually, it was all too much and too fast. So the competition became very fast, very intense. And... We, we had a couple of years of runway already, which, which is probably why we are here today, because that was just our, our luck. But, but there's a lot of good companies that I think have not survived or are not surviving now because it, sort of, it just became too much. If you go into a supermarket and you look into where the products are listed, uh, how many different brands are there, how many different type of products there are, there was this sort of almost a gold rush to get products out, which meant that probably the quality of plant-based food suffered a bit and it became more about money and less about we're trying to do something transformational to the food system, which is, which is why I'm here, you know. And there's nothing wrong with entrepreneurs wanting to make money, but, you know, I think particularly for something that is so driven by the desire to make fundamental change because it is required in the food system to do, that, you know, the driving force behind what you're doing needs to be related to other things than just uh, quick money and the whole hype that was in the in in the sector. So so actually, Alex, it, it hasn't been particularly a benefit, I would say, to to Meatless Farm or to the entire space of let's call it sustainable proteins that it became so popular so fast because it was almost like it, it matured into a, a big business too fast. And then Beyond Meat had a, an IPO in the middle of everything. And they IPO that I think a billion dollars or something, which we were all like, wow, that's that's huge. And then half a year later, the company was worth like 10 or $12 billion. And, you know, it was all just too much what happened. We, we never experienced any of that because we, we weren't, you know, we were not fundraising to do IPOs or, or any of that sort of stuff. But it still affects, I think, the hype in the industry. And I, I kept saying, oh, I don't want to end up in another internet bubble, right? Because it literally was not the reason why I set it up. I just want this to develop slow and natural and people to really pick up on the fact that you can eat proteins. Protein is energy, right? And people are willing to pay for sustainable, renewable energy when, for example, when it comes into your flat, into your house. Uh, so you pay a premium for getting energy that your energy provider certifies as renewable source. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, there must be the same thing for people. You know, protein is energy for your body and people are willing to pay for that and pay a green premium. And we slowly develop then this sort of whole idea that you're going to eat without this extreme impact on the environment as industrialized animal farming has. Right. And then everything just went like on hyper speed. <laughs> crazy and and that looking back at it would probably have been a little bit better had it been more organic and slower there's a lot of 
I guess, negative press around the industry as a, as a whole. How do you combat that? Or what is your, your comment on, on that situation and scenario? And one part of me takes it as a compliment because, you know, we, we, have, a, we have a one and a half trillion dollar business that is, is obviously not under threat at all because I think alternative proteins are representing, unfortunately, something like 3% of all proteins consumed. So humans are still consuming the 97% of animal protein, which funny enough, if you look at what United Nations and others have set out as guidelines, it's, it's completely off target because they're sort of saying by 2030 or 2050, we need to be have been shifted. So there's actually the majority of proteins consumed are coming from non-animal based. You know, I can't see how, how that's going to happen because the volumes in the meat industry are so enormously big, right? But but when I say that it, it's a flattery almost, it's, it's like, so there is somebody out there that, that have created this enormous demand for protein, animal protein, and they are sitting on 97% of the market and yet they are sort of attacking the 3%. The other part is like the little 3% us, the alternative uh, protein industry, we don't get any subsidies because we don't have any lobbyism. We don't have any politicians that are sort of saying, oh, we should support uh, meat and dairy as they do. We should support plant-based. So we're, we're basically dependent on financing ourselves either via you know external funding, venture funding, as we just talked about, or via basically becoming a profitable company and financing our own growth. So the meat industry is, is it can only be a sign that they know the writing is on the wall. We are moving in the right direction. And over time, just as we've seen with adaptation of other technologies, say the, the big, you know, Mercedes-Benz and BMW and Audi and so forth, they didn't bother doing an electrical car until Tesla pushed the market and they woke up and were like, oh, we need to do this. And now they're all doing it, right? So, and at the end of the day, that's really just, from my perspective, what we want to do, we want to just provoke enough and, and, and obviously also create businesses, real businesses around it, but provoke enough for the big guys to take this serious and hence with that, start a tidal wave of, of transformation. And then we might get to those targets that United Nations have set up that 70 percent of, of all future proteins should come from a sustainable uh, protein base, right? So it's your belief that it's not just going to be the plant-based companies that are producing plant-based meat alternatives that are going to get us to meet those targets, but the meat industry themselves has to transition somewhat into that market. Yeah, it, I do think so. I mean, if you look at it, it's exactly the same thing as you have in the car industry. They know how to do the stuff. They, you know, the car assembly, if you remember with Tesla, all the problems that they had in getting actually cars built, right? And then the build quality. And, you know, they had to learn all these things, which is exactly what the plant-based uh, or the alternative protein industry is, is learning at the moment to manufacture, produce, and so forth. But a lot of the equipment we are using sort of downstream in our supply chain are the same as the meat industry are using. So, so of course, they have capacity available there. And we should actually all just cooperate together because one thing that isn't changing is the fact that we are moving sort of the, the, the one and a half degree temperature rise is moving towards two and a half. And then we know we're all screwed, right? It's not just about sitting and defending our territory. It's about working together and trying to solve this problem of, of how we can get people to shift the way that they consume protein. Because the world has an, it seems, unstoppable desire to eat more and more protein. And right now that Desire is primarily animal protein. So 
I, I looked at these numbers the other day, and, and in 1960, there were about 3 billion people on the planet, right? So that's one thing that's remarkable thinking that we're about, you know, we're over 8 billion today already, yeah? So, but in 1960, there were 3 billion people, and the number of farmed animals for consumption were about two and a half. So let's say there were 7 billion farmed animals, land animals on, uh, on the planet in 1960. Today, that number is close to 80 billion. So, you know, you're going from 7 billion to 80 billion in just that period of time. The population has grown, of course, as well exponentially from 3 to 8 billion. But the actual amount of farmed land animals per person alive has gone from two and a half to nine and a half, close to 10. Yeah. So, so suddenly you're looking at 8 billion times 10, 80 billion animals that are, you know, farmed to basically be consumed by humans. And, and that's where the whole thing just, you know, it falls apart because the, if that is going to continue to grow, the amount of, of, of land, water and feedstock that has to go into feeding all these animals instead of feeding humans directly, it just doesn't make any sense. So, that, so that's where I'm sort of, where I know I'm on the winning side. It's not that I want the meat industry to just disappear. I just want the common sense to enter into the discussion and people to realize that when you start thinking about those numbers and about the sustainability angle of what we're doing and what we need to do in order to make a better planet, well, then, then I'm sitting on the right side of the argument and therefore I feel good when I go to bed at night and I feel good about the future growth of the industry. And hence, I'm not afraid of my competition because I'm thinking they're going to, you know, they're going to catch the wave at some point and realize that this is what they need to do. If someone out there that is listening has an idea that is as big as building the biggest meat-free company how do you convince people that it's an idea worth investing in because it's di it's different to say joe and i starting an agency because it's a kind of steady growth business we don't really need uh, capital to be able to start this it's based on exchange of time when you're starting a meat-free business or or something similar that requires a huge amount of starting capital how do you go to someone and, and convince people that it is an idea that is gonna be worth investing in you know, I, I would always try to aim at starting up something which which doesn't necessarily meet, need that much funding because it is it is a very tiresome task of constantly being out and fundraising and and you can do things that are are less intense than building an upstream supply chain or you know wh whatever it is you're doing. There's also some people that have built rockets, right? And you can imagine doing that compared to to something else is is like hugely expensive. And then you need to be very very well vested in how you deal with investors and how you pitch. So so the less capital your business needs, the higher success I think it has uh, to actually make it because you are less dependent on this capital. Whereas it's very easy to get in a squeeze where you suddenly cannot raise more capital and then you have a brilliant business, but it goes out of business because it cannot raise money. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a shame versus you doing something uh, with less dependencies and more of an organic approach. But at the same time, it's also realistic, I guess, to say that organic grown businesses are almost a thing of the past because it, if you have some runaway train, idea in a positive way Th that means there's others picking up on that too and with the accelerated speed of everything we're dealing with nowadays with you know social media and ideas being exchanged so fast and trends being created so fast which you guys will know more about than me it's like you need to be quick out there you don't you don't have the time to like create a family business and then 50 years later say oh we were successful because most likely you're not going to be you're just going to be right won over by someone who 
who had jet fuel in their tank. So the, the way to do it is you build a business plan that is that doesn't have too much of a hockey stick effect, you know, so build a re- realistic forecast uh, and make sure, as I said in the very early beginnings, that you actually have a, a, a real need uh, for that product. And then uh, and then your job is then as a as an entrepreneur is to convince the investors. And as you also know, there's investors in different stages. So so in the beginning, you don't talk to the big institutions, you talk to the angel investors. And then as you grow a little bit, you move from angel to to say venture capital, and then you move from venture capital to more institutional money. And so, so through your different races, you, you have to pitch differently as well, because it's different things that motivates the investors, depending on what maturity stage of your business they enter in. So you, you mentioned that you invest here and there in, in small businesses or, or in businesses that come and pitch to you. What are some of the key things that you look for in their pitch deck? What are the most important things that they need in there? If the, if you're going to part with your your cash, yeah, with my cash, it is the 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 people. For me, very very clearly, I know the difference between a good and a bad idea is not the idea; it's the execution of that idea. So you can have a really bad idea executed excellently by a really good person, uh, and then it'll be a success. Or you can have the best idea in the world and then poorly executed with lack of entrepreneurial talent, and it won't go anywhere. So so it's very very important when you sort of look at ideas and people and, and investments, or if you are precisely the investment, that you also present yourself in a way that is convincing for the investor, that they know that you are there for the right reasons. You're not just there to quickly cash in. You're there to build something, change something, something that's broken now that needs to be fixed for a better future. So so on top of me looking at the, the, the people very, very much, do I believe that this person is going to be able to execute the dream that that is presented to me that's one thing but then the other element there would be are you going to do something that's a net positive to the planet and i don't say that in a in a sort of a preachy way that but if you come to me and 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 you want to sell sugar to children or cigarettes to adults i'm not going to invest because it's it's you know these two ideas have been done in the past already, but you know, you know what I mean. It's like finding something which is actually bringing some positivity into the world. And I think I wish that more capital would be centered around that. And I guess that's why institutional investors have invented ESG, you know, the sort of environmental stamp on, on investments that have, have that. So, so they can sort of start to allocate more and more funds, also institutional money into companies that are working with uh, solutions that, you know, solutions for a better, better future for the planet. You mentioned if someone pitches to you uh, for investment that you're more looking at the people in front of you as opposed to what's in their idea. The qualities that you look for, are there any that stand out to you that if they have it, you're in, and if not, then you're out? And also, of those qualities, do you think people can learn them or do you think people are born with them? Where do they come from? <laughs> well, I think it depends, again, on what type of business it is, because if it's a very technical business, you need to look for the talents that are deriving from a talent in, I don't know, engineering, in science, in in programming, whatever it is. And if you're looking for a more sort of another type of, of less uh, scientific idea, but something else, then you need to look at the person's abilities to, I guess, sell an idea and, and, and pitch himself and stuff so it, or herself. So it's, it's, but I would say that, that what I do look for or what, what, what is important in, in my view is that you have that little bit uh, 
lingering on insanity in, in a positive way. You know, you need to be intense. You need to really, really burn for what you do because, I mean, if you see enough people trying to pretend that you really care, you know it from yourself, you, you pick it up, you can smell this is fake. Or you know immediately if someone steps into the room and there's a certain energy and you're like, that's real. What I'm seeing here is, and if you get that feeling as an investor, then you are already, as an entrepreneur, you are two-thirds through the due diligence process. And due diligence process being the process afterwards, you know, the, the, the steps that once an investor has said, okay, I'm, I want to know more, I like this, then you start the due diligence, right? And then access to data rooms and all the, you know, and, and that, that tedious process that can be a lot less tedious and a lot quicker if, if the investor is passionate about, you know, the people and the team and I want this investment, right? Versus that, okay, I don't really know, but let me look into the data room and let me see if, if the Excel model is convincing me to invest. And then you're like, <laughs> okay, so, the, you know, I, I wouldn't want an Excel model just purely to drive your investment, right? Definitely. And so my next question is, obviously, in 2022, uh, you raised $24 million for global expansion uh, compared to the $2.4 million in crowd, uh, crowdfunding that you raised in 2021. When you raised your first initial round of funding, how did you decide how much you needed to raise? How did you decide how much equity you were willing to give away? How much of that was purely analytical versus emotional? How did you get there? Yeah, well, you look around, you try to see what multiples are there. What are people paying for? And there's different phases in markets as well. You know, when things are good, which they aren't right now, it's very much an uphill struggle at the moment in terms of macroeconomic uh, indicators. Uh, well, you know, inflation is tapping out, but it's been tough, right? We could, I think we can all feel that in, in all aspects. So therefore, naturally, when environments are like this and there's even war at our doorsteps and so forth, you will see the risk appetite of investors going down, meaning that they're willing to pay less for your idea than they were just a year before or two years before. And it, it's exactly the same idea. It's just that the market and the sentiment around the market is is more negative. And so you have to adjust yourself to that a little bit. So so it's really just looking at what does other companies uh, achieve. And there is reports. You can also get some help uh, we, we've gotten help from investment banks, for example. They have analysts that are looking into the sector and will give you an indication of, of, you know, at the moment, the market is looking at a sales multiple of X. So you get some sort of multiple on, on your sales. What are you going to achieve or what have you achieved? And then the multiples depend on that. Or, or in other markets, as, as your business matures, then you look further down the PL and you look more at sort of at your profitability level and then you have an, a, a multiple on that. And that's sort of the way that, that you can get an idea about what, and then the uniqueness of it as well. If you're the only one out there asking for money, you can ask for a much higher multiple. Um, and then the scarcity of it in a sense, meaning that it, not only if you're the only one, but also if, if there is a lot of investors that want to invest and you're the only one, then you can create some sort of competing process, very similar to you selling your house. If, if you are a, a forced seller, uh, you, you, you can't negotiate so much on the price. But if, if, if you have five people knocking on your door wanting to buy your flat at the same time, well, then you can, you can squeeze the price up. So, so I think that's the sort of the process you always, it's, it's unique every time. And you, you just have to, I would say, get some good advice. There's placement agents that does this for a living and they take a percentage of what you raise if you don't know how to do it. We've done it ourselves. So Meatless Farm has raised now almost 90, 80, 80 something million pounds. 
And that's obviously a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money in the space of building factories and buying machines and, you know, that sort of stuff, which, which unfortunately, when you are in a young company, you, you know, older companies would never use equity for that. They would use debt, right? They would go to a bank and they would lend the money and they would buy another machine. But we've never been in that position because of our lack of maturity. So, so we've had to raise quite a, a lot of money. And, and, you know, the valuation over time is, is something that, is driven by the, the interest and the demand. So at the moment, to be very honest, you as a plant-based business, you get a lower multiple than you did three years ago, very clearly. So, and, and you can just look at what happened to Beyond share price. I mean, I, I don't know where they're trading now, but they were valued at 10 plus billion dollars. And I think they're significantly below a billion dollars in value now without having checked it. But so, so there is obviously a huge value adjustment, which is now totally overdone for something like beyond, right, in the plant-based space. So sometimes there's like swings, just as you being an internet company in 2001, you were not getting a lot for your business, right? And then you could be then in 2000 and I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, whatever it was. And then you would get a, you know, a lot more for the same business because the pendulum of unpopularity had swung again into the popular space. Just to illustrate your point, just because I could just check that they're, they're trading it. Seventeen dollars uh, forty-two today from uh, a high of two thirty-four in twenty nineteen. So same company, it, exactly. It's it's and it, that is crazy because if you actually look at it, I'm sure that they've grown their sales. I don't know several times. They're probably two or three times higher sales than they had back back at that point in time. So why a company that's now doing three times better should be valued ten times less? Well, purely because of sentiment, yeah. But that's that's a different space because that's the public, you know. That's the you have IPO'd and you anybody can buy and sell your your shares and stuff. So so that's obviously that gives you that sort of both the benefit, but also the, the draft of the capital markets and you know and this the, the full feeling of that lemming effect that you have, right? But if you're a private company and your shares are not, uh, they they're sort of over the counter. They you know there's something that we exchange between not between an exchange, but just between us, well, then then essentially that is to a certain extent driven by the same, but you can protect yourself a little bit. And then what you have to do, I think, which is a lesson that we have never been particularly good at at Meetis Farm, but that I would recommend anyone to do is over-raise. Yeah? Always raise more than you actually think you need because you will need it. And you never know. It's not so much about optimizing and getting maximum out of your valuation, at that point in time, because if you believe your business is growing, that valuation will always be too low. Yeah. So it's more a question of taking in enough capital that you know that you have enough money to realize that dream. And then don't worry so much about the valuation at that point in time. I mean, don't be stupid, but at the same time, don't be trying to like people are tweaking and, oh, if I could just get another, you know, that that's not important. What is important is, you, you know, if we had, had the freedom throughout to just peacefully develop our business without constantly raising money, we would probably have done better as well. But you know, it's a very typical entrepreneurial mistake and I keep making it that you, you think, oh, I can spend less and we can do this. And then you find yourself a year later, oh shit, I have to raise money again because we spent more than we thought, right? So I think many, many entrepreneurs have that experience or our sales are growing less than we thought. So therefore the working capital requirements of the business needs to be, you know, they're higher, you, you need more money coming in from the outside because your own, uh, your own sales are not supporting you. You know, that sort of stuff uh, where it's just good to be prudent and take more in than you think you need. You've, you've raised um, 
several rounds of investment. And your first round of investment, was it a weird feeling once that had closed and the, the money had hit the account? Is there any feeling of, oh, right, now I've got to go and spend this money? Is, is there any sense of that at all once that day arrives? Yeah, I, I guess I guess it gives you a little bit of comfort and, and then you you sort of, oh, that was stressful. I'm going to make sure that next time I raise money, it's not going to be stressful and I'm going to be very organized until you sit exactly in the next round and are super stressed and you're running out of time. And, you know, it's it just seems to be the way that, that it always is. So, so I'd say the celebrations when you are in that space, they're short-lived because it's sort of, it's capital with a, expiry date on it in the sense that you know you're taking it in to spend it and and you sort of you have projected the funds usage with your investor so they know that over the next 12 months you're gonna run out of money again and then you need so so almost immediately after closing around it's quite normal again subject to whatever business it is but it's quite normal that you're then already starting to sort of look ahead and prepare for the next so it's very much that thing in life, you know, where you forget that you have to just sit and enjoy the sunset because there's only that one sunset and the one tomorrow will be different. So just take your time, live in the present and enjoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all great. But I need to, you know, I'm already stressing about my next race. So I, you know, you know, the truth, you know what you have to do and yet you are not. So celebration, I think, yeah, I, I, yes, we've had moments where I felt really, really good and we, and, but, but, you know, then right after we were in, in stress mode again. So, <laughs> what is the change, um, if any, in the way that you feel or the way that you run the business once the board is no longer just you and your partners, and now there is a board of investors to answer to? Yes. So, as you grow your business, then it becomes much less your business. So, I- I'm not the majority shareholder in the business anymore. So, I have less to say in that sense. I still have a lot to say as a founder and and my vision and so forth. But you also have to except that there are other people around the table who have different ideas and who might be more corporate or more aligned to corporate governance. And if you have some very large investors, then they will come in with certain demands and structures. And, and so so it does change the dynamics a lot on how you make decisions because you have to formalize your board and you have to formalize the processes around the board and make sure that that you are sort of from a corporate governance perspective following procedures. And that, that can be quite difficult if you are just a, a, an entrepreneur that wants to get shit done, which I, I am that person. You know, I'm, I'm not one for, I hate any meeting that's more than, I don't know, 45 minutes. And, and sometimes you have to sit there for three hours and discuss stuff that, you know, I'm not going to publicly say anything, but, you know, sometimes <laughs> the relevance is, is less uh, for, because the operational team, we spend all our hours awake on thinking about these problems. And then you come into your board setting and then you, you spend a lot of time discussing things that you actually already know because you spend all your time thinking about it. Right. But, but the, the board doesn't because they have a lot of other things to do. So, so it's, it's sometimes uh, it's finding that balance. And I think that the entrepreneur's job, the, the founder's job is to select or help select the board that's, that can be helpful and not just a reporting format where you report into and then get the knot and, you know, you can go on, go out and play again. It needs to be a different dynamics, one where you, where you walk out as the operational team, not only the founder, but also you will have your CFO there often, you will have your, you know, your CEO, whatever, you know, different senior C positions participating in the board meeting. And they should also walk out and feel 
yeah, we're really, you know, we're learning something or we're getting strategic contacts. So, and that's a challenge, right? Finding that board that works for you. Are there any memorable or defining moments that stick out to you over the, the course of your career? Defining moments? Uh, well, I think it's just all one long blur of, of stress. Yeah. So <laughs> no, <laughs> I, have, I, have, I, I can say one thing that is it's very different to be an entrepreneur when you are 25 to when you're 45 because you have totally different responsibilities. So for me, my earlier career aspirations were probably more selfish, more aligned to I want a sports car, I want to live that lifestyle I've seen someone do in the movies and, you know, the the, the dreams you have, right? It's stupid or whatever, but it, it's how it is. And I think it still drives a lot of entrepreneurship that sort of, you know, you want to make something out of yourself. And then as you get older, you start focusing a little bit. I have a family, I have three young daughters. And for me, my life is very much around their security. And as an entrepreneur, you are never like risk averse. It's not a profession you should be in if you if you just want safety, then then you know, have a job and safe job and, and do that and stuff. But so it's not about like necessarily being safe, but it's more about like the purpose of why you're doing stuff. So for me, that some of the bigger moments were related to my entrepreneurial uh, sort of existence. And for example, Meatless Farm was started when my uh, youngest daughter was born. So she's turning six tomorrow, actually even though I'm not home. So I've told her that it's on Saturday, bad dad, but you know, she wouldn't know unless she listens to this podcast, but <laughs> I'll make sure she doesn't. Then. But uh, no, she, so she's turning, she's five and now turning six. And, and I started the business. So for me, that was very much a milestone in my, in my life where I remember I was sort of, you know, I got a daughter and I got a business at the same time. And, and, you know, trying to build that business so it would represent a better future for her. So that it sounds a bit phony, but but in my case, it's it's absolutely not. And it's not some sort of, you know, marketing PR thing that I say. It, it's a it's a very it was a very special moment at, at that point in time, uh, because, you know, I think as a as a father, you as a parent, you will think more about the future of the planet. There is one thing that I would like to say that I think is very often overlooked, and that is, you know, in how we live, I can't tell you if you want to smoke a lot of cigarettes and eat a lot of really fatty food, that that's your choice. It might tell you that as a friend, you shouldn't because you're going to live le less uh, healthy and probably die younger. But but I can't, I mean, it's your choice, right? I believe very much we have the freedom of responsibility to live our own life. But what, what we do not have a choice in I feel anyway, is that we have some sort of obligation to provide the conditions for the trillions of people that are not yet born onto this planet to give them something which is similar to the luck that we've had, that we live here in space where, where life is worth living on this planet, right? The natural environment, the temperature rises, the, the floods, the, all these things have to somehow be controlled in a way that we can facilitate a future for the unborn people not yet here. And I think that part is transformational once you really start thinking about it and how, uh, you know, how it affects your consumer choices, for example, the electricity you get into your house, the food you eat, the car you drive. I think that makes sense. It's, uh, I think, a constant struggle for most people is to think about yourself as you will exist in a timeline where it's difficult to be kind of responsible for your future self and think about your future self because you're so busy tackling 
impulses, like in the moment things. But then I've seen it happen with uh, close friends as well who've uh, had kids. It's it's almost like something on that timeline that is a part of you personified and all of a sudden you have this huge responsibility and can kind of see it. So you, I can completely understand how you're talking about as you get older as an entrepreneur as well, your drive shifts from some being something very internal to it's outside of yourself. And and I imagine having uh, children massive, like hurries that along quite a lot as well. Or maybe it's something that manifests in, in with age anyway. Yeah, yeah. having another life that's your responsibility, of course, matures you. There's no doubt about it. So as a, as a parent, you, you sort of have to, but you also have to think about the planet that they will live on when, when you are not there. And it's, it's a natural process. I think a lot, of, a lot of people will think about it, but it is this, there's another metaphor I often use, which is sort of, and, and it's funny because it's roughly half people, 50-50 that will, will answer. But if I tell you that there's a meteor, you know, racing towards the planet and it's going to hit planet Earth in 120 years, and it's going to evaporate all life. It's over, basically. Are you going to change the way you live today, knowing this or not? Half people will say yes. The other half will say no. Because it's such a weird construct to think, well, it's not going to affect me. It's not going to affect my children. Nobody that I know, none of us will be here in 120 years from now. So really, it doesn't matter. But it does, right? It does matter. Because it should we then like just say, oh, we're not going to try to... Uh, avoid that meteor from hitting. So we're not going to send rockets up to shoot it out of course or whatever. We're just going to leave it because it doesn't concern me, right? Or are you going to actively like invest billions of dollars into into trying to solve this thing? We have 120 years to solve it, and and it might just narrowly escape the planet, right? And then and then all those people not yet born they can continue to live happy lives. But I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for them, right? And that context of how to think about the future and how we live now is exactly that that, that frame, right? That that is which one of the two camps do you sit in? I definitely sit in the one where I would try to do anything I can to facilitate that that meteor would just slide past the Earth rather than just crash in and destroy everything. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Is there anywhere that listeners can find out more information about Meatless Farm, what stores uh, can they buy? It yeah, no, I, I, in the UK, I think we have a pretty broad uh, listing. So you can go into a Sainsbury's, Asta, Tesco, Morrison's and so forth. And you, all the big supermarkets, you'll be able to find our products. You can also go to meatlessfarm.com or uh, our Instagram account, which is uh, the apps handler uh, meatless farm so and 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 check us out there there's some fun videos we have a very very good uh chef called ben who's also good at making cooking uh, recipes and videos so there should be some fun content as well uh anyway i think he's very good so i hope the listeners will think so too amazing thank you so much Martin. thank you guys thanks a lot for the time Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps. 